When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We weren't prepared for life on our own. We weren't prepared for celibacy. We were just, in a sense, given a, an academic education and thrown in at the deep end. Now that I married myself and, uh, and have a family, uh, and I look back on, on uh, the kind of sermons I preached uh, about marriage, like, I, I shudder to think now the kind of things I, I said at that particular time. I wouldn't be uh, conscious of being the boss uh, at all. There are some things for which you must take ultimate responsibility. And that can be uh, a lonely, isolating experience. Everybody... Uh, wore the same uniform, the, the soutane, and you wouldn't uh, appear out of your soutane for any reason except to play football. And uh, uh, the, through the day, um, the professors, everybody wore uh, the same garb. And um, we would uh, have, have uh, been censured in some way or other if we were found out of our soutane for any particular reason. A sense of humour was important, um, and I suppose in many ways the... Authority figures in the college were often the the butt of jokes and the, the sense of and maybe uh, tricks to some extent. Um, for instance, people who would want to or have an excuse to go out to Dublin, uh, they might remove the screw from their glasses and go up and show the two separate pieces to the the vice president, in particular, because in a sense, the, the president and vice president had this kind of hard cop, soft cop image here, but nowadays that um, the president was considered a tough kind of character and the vice president would do, um, he'd have been <laughs> preyed on to some extent by the pupils that the day that the president was away people would go up to, with any kind of an excuse and get out partly because we felt maybe the vice president liked to show his authority and uh, to uh, let the boards fly while the, the president was away there was a lot of one-upmanship, like if you get one over on the, the authorities, it was almost like a game between you and them, you know, and if um, if you could win uh, win an occasional joust, you know, you felt really chuffed. Well, I have one memory of um, Frank O'Connor, about two weeks before he died, he, he, I think he gave his final lecture in Minot and he got a great reception. The way in which he was brought in, apparently, was that um, the Literary and Debating Society, or whatever, whichever group invited him in, went to the authorities and said they wanted to begin Michael O'Donovan, which was his, his real name, since Frank O'Connor had been a pen name. So the authorities hadn't heard of any Michael O'Donovan with a bad reputation. So they allowed him in, and um, they couldn't do much about it then after that again, because... Uh, they wouldn't like to admit that they didn't know uh, that uh, Frank O'Connor was a pen name. And that. So um, 
that in a sense was looked on as a victory for the students. But again, maybe a Perrick victory in that uh, they'd make sure that wasn't going to happen a second time. I remember in particular the All Ireland final of 1964, a group of students, probably <laughs> best part of a hundred or more, all gathered outside the window of a professor who had the wind, who had the, the radio left out on the window still. He was breaking the rules himself in that sense. And um, a couple of hundred students below the window listening to the football match, and among them, uh, one man who should have been playing in Croke Park, he had played in the All-Ireland semi-final, but um, he wasn't allowed out, so he was there just listening to the match, um, almost by accident or by the the good graces of a professor who was kind enough to put the, the radio on the window. Uh, in Minute at the time... Uh, there were 93 of us in the one uh, year in 1964. The names were drawn out of a hat, at least that's what we were told, uh, for seniority. I was number 76, and uh, I think Porig was uh, about number 57 or so, which meant that in terms of the allocation of rooms that uh, students at the lower end would have to uh, double up and share rooms. There were a few double rooms because, the, remember, there would have been 535 students studying for priesthood at the time. Uh, I doubled uh, with Porig. When it came to picking the room, Porig uh, chose a room which we wouldn't have known at the time, the room beside uh, the, the ghost room, and had the number of the ghost room in years gone by. It was the second room from the end of the corridor. The first year, beside the ghost room, in what was called Rhetoric House, or still is, I'm sure. And um, I remember uh, certain aspects of that, that, you know, you'd make sure you had been to the toilet before, so you wouldn't have to go up in the middle of the night. You know, you could be very bravado about the ghost room, but when you'd be shuffling back along the corridor and maybe two or three in the morning in the dark, um, you'd be afraid of what you'd meet. But we were lucky in the sense that we had known each other and had been friends in secondary school. But there were two men, young men put into the room on the other side uh, who hadn't known each other. And one of them apparently was a sleepwalker. And when his um, roommate woke up in the middle of the night, he discovered him walking around the room and the... The story of the ghost uh, apparently was you know, a sad case the previous century, early in the previous century, when a man threw himself out the window um, and something similar happened 20 years later. And because of that, the, the wall of the room was removed and it was an oratory ever since. But when this student saw his fellow student um, walking around in the middle of the night and heading over towards the window, he... <laughs> He thought this was happening all over again, you know. In the notes, cash was a slang term for caveat, uh, the Latin word for warning. And it was considered a very severe warning because the third of them meant you were sacked, you had to go home, or you were finished as a trainee priest. 
So one was considered very serious, two extremely serious, and the third you were finished. In fact, very silly things didn't merit a catch in those times. In the past, it was, uh, I think people got them for what were considered very serious, I suppose, things like smoking and uh, possibly drinking, um, reading novels. Sometimes people who were even studying literature wouldn't, wouldn't have been allowed to read novels. Um, in our time, I know one classmate of ours got a cat for reading the Longford Leader, which wouldn't be considered um, very scurrilous, I'd imagine. This was a, a, a tradition handed down by generations of students in Maynooth, that uh, it was something very serious. Uh, if you uh, got a solemn warning, which was uh, known in popular parlance as a cat, then it may be an indication that you were not intended uh, to become a priest. Well, there are a lot of lore uh, built up around that, and yet we had heard stories of um, students from our own diocese of Chum uh, years and years ago who were found playing cards on one occasion. The card players were uh, expelled and uh, some of them studied for a diocese in Scotland. And it is said that the bishop of that diocese wrote back to the president of Maynooth uh, looking for more card players. They were among the finest priests that that bishop had in his diocese. At the time, it was common for uh, students in a diocese to come from the, what was known as the Minor Seminary, in our case, St. Charlotte's College. We would have built up a good relationship with our classmates back in, the, in St. Charlotte's over five years, and uh, we felt that Christmas time might be a good time to have a little get-together. It would be the only opportunity that we would have uh, in Maynooth, because it wasn't possible to get out for gatherings of that kind. So uh, one night there was a function in the Aula Maxima which some of us did not attend. We went to our rooms and uh, we decided we'd try and organise a, a reunion of our 1964 Leaving Certificate class. Uh, one thing borrowed another. The other students returned from the function and uh, close on 12 o'clock, which would have been time uh, for uh, solemn silence being in our own rooms in bed asleep. Uh, there was a knock on the door and uh, the dean uh, walked in and uh, found a number of Chum uh, students uh, uh, sitting around the room. And we were marched back to our rooms. Uh, he told us that he would be sending for us the following morning and uh, would be bringing us before the Administrative Council. The president, you must remember, was a Chum priest, uh, Monsignor Gerard Mitchell. The dean, on this occasion, it was said that he uh, mischievously succeeded in uh, getting the president uh, quite uh, irate. The president did not realise that the dean had been uh, filling him in on the behaviour of Chum students. So at that point, the president 
was quite embarrassed uh, by the fact that it was Tune students who were uh, the culprits on this occasion. Uh, the president asked us to account for the fact that we had been uh, brought before the council for breaking the two most serious rules in the college. One, uh, the infringement of solemn silence, and the other, entering another student's room. One student said that we were uh, organising a reunion of our own class back in St. Charlotte's, and you must remember that the president was a past pupil of uh, St. Charlotte's. At that stage, the president said, surely you don't expect me to take that as a reason. And one student became eloquent at that stage and said, well, we're not offering it so much as a reason, but rather as an explanation. Now, needless to say, the president had no time for casuistry of that type. And uh, he did uh, let us know in... uh, very definite terms that we were in deep trouble he would have to inform our archbishop and uh, inform our parish priests this was a, a frightful experience uh, at the time and, and even though we were maybe thought we were hard men and rebellious uh, it still knocked a, a fair bit of the stuffing out of us and um, I remember like our great fear was that the other students uh, in, in our class and in the college would, would find this out. And uh, one, one of the chaps had a, a brother there and he was, he was terrified that his brother, who was uh, uh, in, in his last year or so, would, would find out about this at the time. And I remember us begging the Administrative Council uh, not to, uh, to divulge this to anybody that would receive these solemn warnings. And um, they, they, they were... a, a amused that that we would have uh, thought like that, that this was part of the punishment, that everybody should know about it. The Archbishop uh, at the time, Archbishop Joseph Walsh, uh, was not uh, very impressed by uh, deans uh, and by deans reporting students uh, to him. And uh, he did tend to make allowances for students who had... uh, difficulties with uh, deans and with authorities in Maynooth. He never confronted us on the the issue, which would probably be an indication that he didn't take it too seriously. I remember sometime after that again, the the same dean sweeping into the room in which the present Archbishop Michael Neary and myself, uh, we were sharing that room that year, and uh, he seemed to have to think... He had scored a great triumph. I remember him drawing out uh, my bed and there was a, a newspaper under the bed and um, it was the Sunday Times which I had taken from outside the door of a professor who lived near us uh, just to read. But lucky enough, the professor's name was on top of the, the page and we had been studying, studying Greek and he was a professor of Greek. So the, at that stage, the... The dean pulled in his horns a bit and kind of accepted it. Nothing was said, but he didn't push the matter any further. It was quite common for dean to tell students at the time that there were vacancies in the bank or in the guards, and um, there seemed to be continual pressure to to get people to leave. Or um, at the time, there would have been it was probably the highest level that uh, vocations or 
student studying for the priesthood was at in Ireland and there seemed to be a concerted effort to weed us out and uh, quite often the feeling was that it was the the flowers that were being weeded and then and the weeds that were left and, and I include myself among the weeds, you know, that uh, people with spark or with um, idealism or with uh, kind of lively, exciting people seem to have been targeted and uh, it, was, it was like as if there was an effort to bring about uniformity and uh, that, you know, if you were cute enough to keep your head down and... Um, not break any law or rule, uh, you know, you get through all right, you know, but if you showed any initiative or any, that you'd be targeted or certainly taken down the size, if not driven out altogether. You know. But I've met some people over the years who were quite bitter because they felt they were hounded out, they were, they were hounded out. They were very enthusiastic and very idealistic people. And it left them quite bitter um, because it was really maybe a personality clash with the dean rather than anything to do with their um, capabilities, psychological or any other way of being good priests. The dean at the, uh, of discipline at the time, at the end of that particular year, he was saying that he, he didn't know what was coming over the, the students, that he had administered more cats in that particular year than he had in the rest of his uh, 20 years in existence as dean there. There were too many given out at the time, so suddenly warnings, or these severe warnings, became somewhat of a joke. And um, ever after that, they never seemed to have the same effect. But things were changing in, in Minute as well, um, because the following year was the first year that lay students came in. And in a sense, the... That was the watershed year, the uh, the year that it went from being virtually a monastery to being an open university. Like quite a number of, of students over that particular period were beginning to uh, look at look at what was happening in other colleges. So one of the things that we were demanding at the time was this establishment of a students' representative council, and I remember there was quite an amount of resistance to this, and the college authorities at the time. Um, said that they couldn't allow this to happen without it going uh, to to the bishops' conference, and uh, they were going to meet at Easter. And um, I, I think there was such a fear at the time that this students' representative council wouldn't be established that um, the students uh, threatened that they were actually going to go on strike. And um, uh, this, uh, some reporter got wind of this, and I remember the evening papers headline at the time: "Students put gun to bishop's head." Um, this was quite a you know, like quite a headline at that particular time for uh, seminarians to be to be going on like this. Uh, at that particular time, I think um, the the Irish Church was was ripe for development, and of course, it was just after the Second Vatican Council as well. But we we went through a minute of of great change, like when uh, the introduction of of uh, lay students became a reality as well, um, and uh, students from other. Uh, orders and uh, nuns also uh, started to study in Maynooth and um, this that made a lot of I think a very big contribution to uh, our, our our own development I remember the, there was quite a number of divine word missionaries it was I think good to study beside people who are going going to the missions and uh, to discuss with them the kind of fears and worries and uh, expectations and challenges and all that that they saw ahead of them like one of the the other um, significant uh, events at the time was the introduction of uh, the um, daily newspapers into the college. We weren't um, 
allowed to have the Sunday papers for some reason or other, but we could ha- we could uh, actually read the, the daily newspapers. And there was a reading room where, where these were introduced. I remember there was such panic on the, on the first day uh, that they were introduced because the, uh, the, the dean had, had distributed the newspapers in the reading room and uh, left them there so that the students coming back after uh, lunch break um, could, could see them. But some student who had skipped lunch or, or the prayer after lunch had... Uh, gone into the reading room looking to do some reading and uh, discovered all those newspapers that he didn't expect to see there and took the whole lot and in case the dean had found them the dean marched down with all the students to show off the, the, the newspapers and found how the papers had disappeared so that there was a, there was a bit of pandemonium on that occasion but um, the the other thing that of course um, uh, came in, a, in our time Minute was, was television uh, was introduced to the college as well and um, like a as Solemn Silence disappeared, uh, it was replaced by t- watching television programmes. I remember programmes like uh, Kojak and Hawaii Five O and stuff like that was on the go at the time. And um, this was, a, I suppose, a kind of a rare novelty for, for the students at that particular time because having gone through secondary school and into Maynooth, like we didn't, even though television was becoming a feature of many homes, uh, we wouldn't have had the opportunity to see that much television. So that um, it was it was something that, at the particular time, that... Um, like just like now with with uh, the problem you'd have in your own home trying to get t- children to study um the competition with television and um it was it was something that competed a bit for our time as well and uh, one had to develop some discipline um about that like and that was that was the difference between our early years in Manuth and the latter years like that uh, in the early years we were told virtually what to do every minute of the day and in our last two or three years there it became much more a situation where you could make up your own mind on things. There would have been great hopes even then, say, the, the issue which tormented the church for 30 years afterwards, the, like, for instance, called reception. The, it would have been known then that the uh, commission set up by Pope Paul VI uh, had recommended that there be change, you know, whereas the following year then Humana Vita came out and it was um, scuppered. In, in many ways, the Theological staff would have been split down the middle at the time. There'd be arch conservatives and, and some quite liberal people, and some people who seemed to jump on the bandwagon uh, whichever way it turned. You know, the um, you know the number of people who had been making liberal no- noises up until then. But as soon as you know, when when Rome spoke, they jumped on the, that particular bandwagon and were rewarded for it. In, in um, in positions of power and authority. I think um, in the last few years that I, I uh, would have spent uh, uh, in the priesthood, I, I was gradually coming to a, a conclusion that uh, the particular life wasn't for me, that I that I wanted something different. Um, like there was quite a, a number of, of reasons that, um, that I was... Uh, that were coming up in my mind why I should um, leave at the particular time. Um, I remember uh, something that was that happened accidentally where I had gone to see a psychologist to uh, get some counselling help for somebody that, that was lo- looking for that and that was kind of um, rare enough at that particular time and to even get it around uh, Castlebar was probably uh, unique as well but in listening to the psychologist talking about the kind of work that he that he normally did and... and um, the kind of work that he, he would be doing with the people who needed the help I went for. Um, 
I, I felt that maybe a few chats with him myself would, would uh, clear my own thoughts. And um, I found that, that very helpful and um, in, in helping me to make up my mind what I, uh, about what I wanted to do. Um, because I always felt like that uh, I had drifted into the, into the priesthood without giving it a lot of thought. Like uh, It would have been almost um, traditional expectation within the, the, my family scene that I would have uh, gone this particular road and from virtually from the, the day I could uh, talk, like it, it was something that was mentioned to me, you know, that this was, uh, that I was, you know, uh, I was going to be a priest and uh, nothing else was ever considered. And um, I remember my, the year I did the leave insert, um, saying to my mother that I was thinking about um, looking at uh, agricultural science uh, and um, going into that particular area. I, I remember um, very clearly what she said to me and, uh, you know, she had virtually almost visions from God that uh, that this was the, the route I should uh, think about. Like, and, and I remember my father was uh, working in England at the time. You know, like uh, his main purpose uh, in being there would have been to, to make it possible for me to go through secondary school and um, on to uh, Maynooth. Because um, in Maynooth at the, that particular time, there wasn't a lot of uh, financial assistance uh, from, from the diocese. Like by the time you got to... Uh, your last three or four years, the, the amount of help you'd have got from your bishop would, would have been a bit more substantial. But for any family that didn't have a lot of means, uh, putting through uh, a student through Manute at that particular time was quite difficult. And um, like I, I um, would have felt all those kind of pressures, like that I just had to keep stay with it. And um, I suppose like one one felt like you know that this oh, this this was going to be quite a good life anyway. And um, you saw priests having what was considered uh, maybe the good life. Um, they mightn't all agree with that. But um, that was the kind of conclusion I came to anyway, that I um, had drifted in and uh, I, I didn't want to go through a, a drift situation and maybe drift out an alcoholic in uh, 10 years later or something like that. I, I left then in, in 1979. I had actually uh, went to work in England, um, got a job over there as a social worker and worked over, over there for a number of years. It was quite a difficult decision to make. Like I, I suppose uh, people who, who go through marriage breakdown uh, and have to make decisions to uh, split up, you know, go, go through the same kind of uh, process. And um, there is a certain uh, bereavement attached to it because there, there's a, quite a, a loss in your life. Like there was a certain guilt, guilt uh, I found attached to leaving. Like did you feel you were leave, letting people down? Um, that would have been one of the things that, was, that I was able to uh, discuss with the psychologist at the time that I went to see and um, I found that very helpful like in, you know, that um, if, if this decision had to be made, well it, it was my life and my decision and I couldn't be worrying excessively about um, who I was going to let down, like and particularly you know, like you'd be concerned about your own family situation. Um, my mother was, was alive at the time, like and like I, I did realise that it was a very hard knock for her like, um it was difficult uh, in a small rural townland um, in the west of Ireland um, for a mother to uh, experience her son leaving uh, the priesthood. I think that she herself got a lot of uh, support locally that she didn't expect to get, uh, just as I also got from a lot of people. Um, like I was quite surprised at the number of people who, who wrote to me and wished me well, uh, people from the parish that I had been in, both... Uh, my family and and the bishop at the time uh, were quite helpful and uh, like if I had fallen 
uh, hard times um, financially. I, I'm quite sure and certain like, that the bishop at the time wouldn't have seen me uh, in, left in any kind of difficulty. sexual abuse um, in recent years I suppose have been the, the saddest and the most difficult thing for a priest to, to deal with um, I was watching uh, States of Fear and some of these other uh, documentaries um, You know, I've been trying to think back. Was I aware of anything um, of this going on? Um, the I remember as students from my notes in the later years, we used to go down to Dangan Reformatory on on a Sunday evening, and you know there'd be maybe a football match or um, a concert or something, and. Um, when I saw some of these programmes and uh, realised, you know, what was going on, and, and it came as a shock to me to have uh, to have been there, and um, you know, it, it brought home the reality, I suppose, more so, or to have seen some of the people who have on television who were traumatised by this, you know, to to realise that it was the institution, you know, to which I belong. And which I, to which I've given my life, that were, um, you know, closed their eyes to some extent, or that this, um, that, you know, the good people that were in these places also, in in positions of, uh, you know, as priests, brothers, nuns, the various things. Uh, that uh, I suppose the saddest thing is that um, they didn't speak out, and at the same time, having come through the system, I suppose I can. Uh, I can understand um, the almost impossibility it was for some of them uh, to speak out if they wanted to remain in the uh, in the orders in which they were. So it's um, it's very dramatic to think back that uh, you know I belong to the system that allowed this to happen. I was uh, amazed. I was absolutely dumbfounded by them. I did not uh, have any idea that uh, such things were happening uh, and I would not be alone uh, in expressing that view because most of the priests with whom I would speak would have been equally uh, both uh, horrified and uh, totally dumbfounded by uh, hearing these things uh, said about, uh, well, about colleagues who are priests, but also uh, in society itself, there was a, a total lack of awareness on on the, our part. You expect vulnerability to be uh, respected, but uh, when it's not just not respected but rather when it's exploited. But then I, I think it's very difficult to find words 
to um, give expression to the sense of outrage uh, that one experiences. As a priest or a bishop, you belong to a family. You have nieces and nephews. And uh, very often you put yourself in that situation uh, where uh, one of those may be uh, abused and uh, you're just a very short step away from a very angry reaction then. I believe that the Lord is saying something to us uh, through the scandals, through uh, the different things that are happening in our society, different uh, developments that are taking place. And these are being presented as challenges. I feel that if we're going to respond uh, to these challenges, then we must be in there convinced of the contribution which Christ has made and continues to make to human society. For example, in the church in Chum, I believe that there is now a a greater involvement of uh, lay people, much greater participation. For example, when I was ordained a priest in 1971, uh, women were not uh, reading uh, in, the, in our churches at the time. I remember uh, at my first Mass, it was uh, two uncles who read the epistles. Uh, I have three sisters. I didn't have any brothers, so I recall that very clearly. The future has to be different because um, the, one, the present situation won't continue. The the vocations and all that has shown, proven the facts and figures are there to show that things can't and won't go on as they are. So, um, you know, the future has to be different and in that sense it's exciting uh, for whoever will be around. And, um, you know, the decisions that have been postponed in this century will have to be made in the next century, say, even though things like uh, women priests or uh, married priests and uh, many other aspects of the church, minor enough aspects in a sense, I think Prince women priests would be far more important from the point of view of um, equality and there'd be danger of being introduced for the wrong reasons uh, for you know, lack of vocations other than for people's women's rights but um, I think all these things will have to be faced up to by the next generation, but you know, we'll get to the, the millennium first and uh, in the, the old-fashioned way, and I think from then things might begin to take off.
we would have met for the first time uh, when we did the entrance examination for St. Charlotte's in June of 1959. And um, that friendship would have continued into Maynooth. And while we have our separate uh, responsibilities since then, and uh, while we may not be meeting uh, at very regular intervals, I, I find no difficulty in uh, taking up from where we left off with, uh, with Porig. Uh, it's a relationship that has, uh, I suppose, uh, transcended uh, the kind of responsibilities which we have, uh, which each of us would have at this time. And um, I have never experienced uh, our responsibilities to come in the way of our relationship. Yes, yes, boss. <laughs> <laughs> I think that the ability to be able to laugh at oneself uh, is very important. And it's important to be able to laugh at oneself before anybody else laughs at, at you. Um, and this is something that I would have learned uh, in Minute, and it's probably something I would have learned from my classmates from the diocese in Minute, and to which or to whom I would be eternally uh, indebted. I enjoy a good game of football and uh, I like to uh, to see uh, Gaelic football being played as it should be played in a sporting, clean, competitive, skillful way. I suppose that would be part of my uh, background in St. Charlotte's. Not that I was any good at the game, but I was very keenly interested and still am. It's difficult on Sundays when you're heading off to confirmations and uh, maybe your uh, county team or some other team that you'd like to see uh, is uh, involved in a game. But uh, the call of duty demands that you follow the gospel. I would still uh, value something like, like the attendance of Mass on Sunday, for example. Um, I would give a certain importance to that. Um, on a fairly regular basis. Sometimes I'd often wonder, you know, is it the children bringing you to Mass or are you bringing them to Mass? But um, I do feel it's an area that I haven't, that I'd, I would um, miss that contribution of my life, into my life, if, if I was to um, uh, abandon it or anything like that. I, do, I would feel like, you know, that a number of priests who left, like, uh, you know, left entirely, left the church completely behind them and wouldn't have any uh, contact of that kind. But I think for the majority of, of uh, ex-priests, like they, they do um, have a continuing involvement, and some more than others, some make quite a, a contribution in their own to their own church where they live and work. But I think, um, like, it's a question that my, that's often asked of myself, like, with the shortage of priests that are there, um, would you uh, go back again? But I always felt this was a particular vocation that I went into. Um, and that wasn't for me. And uh, I don't know at this stage in my life would I would I think any differently either. Uh, I think I'd probably still hold with the same 
uh, with the same line that um, I shouldn't have ever uh, went in that particular direction. I'd probably describe myself now as a lapsed radical sort of thing. I've gone old and tired and not willing to book too many trends anymore. But uh, at the same time, I've, you know, probably through writing and um, more than anything, I have tried to, you know, carve out in the sense of almost a career, a parallel career, uh, but also very church-oriented in many ways, you know, that uh, it's a way of asking questions for which uh, you cannot be wrapped very much in the knuckles. You know, I suppose it's to some extent an imitation of the um, Jesus' own methods of, of um, telling a story and uh, letting the story hang there rather than um, trying to say to somebody, well, this is the way it should be or uh, this is the way it is, you know, just he or she was ears to hear, let them hear, rather than uh, laying down any particular line that people get their own meaning from things. As for staying in there, I, I just don't know. Maybe St. Peter's answer when Christ said, uh, Will you two go away? You know, to whom shall we go? Sort of. Uh, for me, this was what I wanted to give my life to. And, um, it still is. If you enjoyed this documentary, you might like to listen to our other Documentary on One productions. Visit rte.ie forward slash doc on one.